Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the podcast. It's quite an honor to have Frank X. Walker on this program. He is the consummate Kentucky, maybe the world, man of letters, always writing, thinking about a new treatment to a historical story, commenting on the state of the world in a way only an educated, thoughtful person could. He stands alone among many fine Kentucky writers. Frank has a couple of new projects uh, we're going to talk with him about uh, in just a moment. Uh, But if for some strange reason you aren't familiar with Mr. Walker, listen closely. A native of Danville, Kentucky, is the first African-American writer to be named Kentucky Port Laureate. Walker has published 10 collections of poetry, voted one of the most creative professors in the South. He directs the MFA program at the University of Kentucky. Walker coined the term Afrolatcha and co-founded the Afrolatchian Poets, subsequently publishing the much-celebrated Epotamus Collection several years ago. Frank, uh, Frank has received many awards, honors, and doctorates. Uh, he loves comic books, and he recently returned to his affection for the visual arts. Today, he joins us, as I mentioned, to talk about two adventuresome new projects, one of which he will uh, be proudly talking with you about at this year's October 29th Kentucky Book Festival at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington Green, and the second, a forthcoming publication titled A is for Afrolatcha, available in 2023. And once again, for information on the Kentucky Book Festival, KY bookfestival.org. And Frank, it's uh, it's an honor to have you back in front of the microphone. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, tell me, first of all, uh, as we get started on uh, Buffalo Dance, uh, when and, and why did you decide to revisit that uh, publication? Well, it's interesting. I've, I'm, I'm trying to respond directly to the word revisit because for me, it feels like I never left. Um, one of the things that I guess people don't know or aren't familiar with here in Kentucky is that there's a program called Fish Trap that happens in in Oregon, uh, East Oregon, on traditional Nez Perce lands. And it's a week-long writing retreat. And I've been teaching there in the summers off and on the last decade. And I taught there again this summer. But every time I go back there, I have a chance to to feel York's energy and, and presence and to, to fall in love with the landscape. Much of the area is still pristine in the same condition that it would have been when York and the, the travelers with Lewis and Clark saw it for the first time. Uh, so it's hard not to think about York and the expedition when in the same spaces. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing space, especially being up in the mountains where when it thunderstorms, it feels like it's in the room with you, not above you, but in the room, and you can't help but duck or and feel the reverberations from the thunder just kind of rolling down the mountain. Um, so every time I'm in that space, 
I'm, I'm, I'm back in that in, in the York mode. Um, so I've been back there, and every time I go back there, the interest is, is, is much higher, and they want to hear the York poems. Uh, and most people don't know that I've also been working on a, a third York book uh, beyond the, you know, this expanded version that we're talking about uh, that imagines, you know, York returning to this same space. So every time I return, I think about York returning and... There's also a, a feature film in development about York that uses the third book uh, as the script, you know. So I'd never really left that space uh, personally because it's it's still very present for me. Uh, and I feel like this expanded version of, of Buffalo Dance will kind of help jumpstart what I hope will be a revisiting of York, you know, a year in advance of what I hope will be the release of the third book. Tell us um, uh, about York and what we have learned from Buffalo Dance, but uh, for those who, who don't know who he was and what he went through and who he was with and the, the travels that he made, just give us a little uh, background on York. Well, the beauty of it is that, you know, he has a, it's, a, it's a very Kentucky story. Uh, if you have the privilege of being in Louisville on the Belvedere at 6 in Maine, there's a nine-foot-tall bronze statue of York, you know, overlooking the Ohio River, uh, and that's my favorite place to start. That's this story. Uh, Ed Hamilton's uh, version of York, you know, stands there. Very, Sculptor from Louisville. Yes, amazing, amazing work. Uh, has this very majestic uh, image of York that really does an amazing job talking about his contributions to the Lewis and Clark expedition as a hunter. You know, his his physical. Uh, acumen, you know, how much larger he was than the average man in that time period. You know, physically he resembled a NFL, modern-day NFL defensive lineman. Uh, but he was nimble, you know, as, as, a, as a dancer. And, and there are accounts in the journals of him being uh, told to dance, to perform and entertain uh, Native Americans and, and other individuals. Uh, and his, his hunting feats and, uh, I mean, the fact that he carried, you know, a knife, a hatchet and a gun, uh, but he was still enslaved. It seems, you know, like a contradiction. Uh, but his story and his contributions to the Lewis and Clark expedition are very clear if you read the journals, which are very long and, 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 and tedious. But many of the original historical accounts left him out or left out uh, Sacagawea, the Native American young woman who was also part of the expedition. So, you know, my attraction and my fascination with York was as this, you know, Kentucky person who left Kentucky to be part of the expedition uh, and helped it succeed and return back to Kentucky and, and at a different level, you know, obviously changed from having been out there in the wild for those three years. Uh, but I, I was always amazed that most people only ever heard of Lewis and Clark and not the 42 other people that were part of the expedition, including this African-American Kentuckian. Did York hope to gain his freedom, or did he gain his uh, emancipation? It, it's my understanding from the research that York was promised his freedom uh, for participating, and and he didn't get his freedom until 10 years after the return from the expedition. Um, and then there's this, this story that people question uh, that says that um, when York died in the mountains of Tennessee of the cholera, he was on the way back to Kentucky 
uh, to be Clark's slave again, that he wasn't happy as a free man, that he wanted to be enslaved. Uh, and historians count this as fact because a reporter uh, said he heard Clark say that to him on his deathbed. So that becomes the historical record. But most people who, who read the details have trouble imagining that an enslaved man once gained f freedom wanting to go back to be a slave again. It, it makes little sense uh, to most people, including myself. Uh, the expanded uh, edition, which will be available at the uh, the book festival and, and is available now, um, it, it contains a narrative. Um, tell us uh, how people return to Buffalo Dance and, and, and can read uh, the uh, the the lyric uh, the lyricism there, the, uh, the the beautiful words. Uh, but this expanded edition with the narrative, how does how do you think? it adds to what you'd already done, the work that you'd already done. There's so many writers, aren't there, that finish uh, a successful piece and, and, and put it aside and, and maybe ride its accolades. Um, but but you, you've decided there's more to the story. Well, what I discovered was there was more to the story. There was so much research uh, that I hadn't even uncovered yet. And and what this new expanded version does is it adds more, uh, it adds more layers to the story on the front end, of, and in the middle, uh, of the, of the York saga. Uh, I think it does a better job talking about the Kentucky presence on the expedition. I think the first version almost begins leaving Kentucky, um, and it doesn't. You don't feel the the, the narrative pick up until they they you know, past St. Louis. Uh, in this expanded notion, uh, there are several poems that grounds the story uh, in and around the Falls of the Ohio uh, and the property that uh, William Clark lived on uh, that also included York and York's father and York's stepmother and York's two siblings who don't show up in the, in the original version. Uh, so there are several poems that try to to add more weight in, in that space. So it really feels more Kentucky instead of, you know, there's nothing wrong with it being a national story, but I really wanted to, to add more weight to the Kentucky centeredness, to center it more in Kentucky, even though it's, a, you know, it's an American story. But it, uh, as you said, is, is a Kentucky story and, and one that uh, not many Kentuckians know about. Uh, it's, it's that important. And again, it's that it's that uh, struggle that some of us, uh, some of us have discussed and talked about. About we're not we're not teaching our Kentucky history like we used to, like you uh, learned in in uh, grade school, middle school, mm -hmm. uh, some in high school, um, and we're losing that. And uh, hopefully, uh, this will add to the um, to the Kentuckiness of of this story. Um, you mentioned. Uh, a, a, a film, will it be historical in nature? Will it, will it be a, a drama? Well, I think it, it can't help but be dramatic. You know, the, this third, the third book, you know, really tries to tell the story of York returning uh, to the Nesbridge tribe all by himself. Uh, and if you can imagine the challenge of, of making that trek, mostly on foot. I mean, it's not a short distance. It's, it's, it's even as a, as a drive, it, that's your summer. 
but you know this is uh, at least a year you know trying to get back there um but you know what I've what was painful but not really too painful to learn that the whole relationship with filmmaking from the point of view of the writer is is learning to accept the detachment that you get uh once you know the film company and the directors have the project it's theirs and you know it's their job to 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 absorb it and then decide how to tell the story from their own point of view so i, I you know i only had a chance to write a narrative uh, and i have no idea what the final thing will look like and, and my hope is that i'll recognize it uh the hard thing was first letting go of it uh and second uh accepting the fact that uh you know, I, I sold all my power to, to help tell a story at the same time. You know, I'll get film credit. You know, I'll, there'll be something on the screen that says my name and, and story by. Uh, but as far as what unfolds on the film, that's totally up to the to the director and the filmmakers. And and I've accepted that. And, and it's been, and I thought it would happen overnight and there'd be a film, you know, six months later. Uh, but we're now into the third year and it's still in pre-production. <laughs> uh, are you um, going to be acting as consultant uh, on the film, or will they call on you? Yeah, I'm, I'm still um, invested in, in in the narrative, and I think part of my contract is to be available for rewrites. I've, I spent a month with them uh, in the Nez Perce uh, lands, and, and we were in Montana and Oregon and Washington State, you know, driving around looking for uh, shooting sites. And interviewing uh, potential uh, contributors to the film uh, as dancers, or uh, there's a lot of horsemanship that would be required to pull off the movie. And they were looking for expert horsemen who were also Nez Perce, and uh, and that was exciting to uh, to be in that space, to to be in the room and quiet, but to to watch it all unfold, to know that you know this thing is is moving, is happening, and to feel it and the power of it. Uh, and during that, you know, that whole month, I was still doing rewrites. So that we would have morning sessions where, you know, I would read poems out loud that I'd been working on all night or the night before. And then they would, you know, gather themselves in the corner and come back and say, well, we're interested in that particular voice in that direction. Can you give us more of that? And then I'd go back to work the rest of the day and we'd go back and forth. And that was exciting. I've never done anything like that before, but... Uh, I can't wait to see what they do with the final thing. Cause yeah. they, well, let's hope they, uh, they hurry up a little bit. <laughs> please, please. Yeah. Um, we want to talk about uh, A is for Afrolacha, um, uh, Frank. Uh, it'll be out in 2023. But before we do that, I, as a lead-in to our underwriter, Spalding University, um, where uh, you attended and uh, uh, we both are cheerleaders for Spalding. You were a member of the first class uh, to graduate, and they just celebrated their 20th year, I think it is. And um, But you also, as I mentioned earlier, are director of the uh, MFA program at the University of Kentucky. So there's a, a natural segue here. Uh, what about writing today? What about uh, young people that are in your class uh, in the program at the University of Kentucky? Um, what uh, great knowledge you gained uh, at, at Spalding. Uh, I've heard you talk about um, this before, but it's such a, an interesting story. You didn't know what to expect. You were doing a little bit of writing then and writing a few poems here and there. And uh, did, did Spalding provide for you the, 
the real spark uh, and the impetus for you to carry on? Uh, spotting, you know, turned the light on for me. I mean, I think that... Uh, Such a beautiful way to put it. Well, for me, I was really... My writer life was mostly hope and a whole lot of dreams. But I'd have, I had very little direction. And, and, and I had some models for how it happens, but they were across the street. Spalding brought models into the room and, and sat down at the table with me. Uh, and you know, I remember leaving. I left the program with a book. Um, you know, I met you know, amazing writers and mentors who are still friends. You know, Greg Pape uh, and our, our, our golfing buddies even today. And 20 years ago, we were in the same classroom talking about York. Uh, there would be no... Buffalo dance, if not for him, you know, he was, uh, I think I shared the, the, the early poems with other writers and, and even teachers in classes, and there wasn't much response. When I shared them with him, uh, there was a kind of excitement that I had not expected. It turned out that he lived within a mile of the Lewis and Clark Trail in Montana, and he had camped out at different sites, and he had so much personal knowledge about Montana and Lewis and Clark that when he returned uh, home to Montana, he started mailing me books. You know, so I'm reading new books about what they ate and the flora and fauna and, and you know, the, the medicinal challenges. And it really reinvigorated me uh, to look in different directions. And every, one of those, every book he sent me yielded at least one new poem that ended up in Buffalo Dance. Um, and so he became my number one reader uh, for that project. And, and you know, together... Uh, now, I remember when he, I had 12 poems and he read them. He said, this is a book. This is a book. All you need, and then he would give me a list of these 25 things that, that didn't exist yet. And that helped me guide my research and shaped, you know, where I traveled and, and how far west I would have to go to, to flesh out the book. But it was because of Spalding and, and the teacher-student relationship at that level, because it's very different from being in the classroom with, you know, 40, 50, 125 people. Uh, this one-on-one -on -one attention to you and your craft and a book project just brings it, you know, so close, it's real. Um, so do you try to do that with your students uh, today at the University of Kentucky? Do you, do you try to turn the light on for them? Oh, absolutely. We, we, we try to turn on spotlights for them now. You know, we, don't, <laughs> we light up the room and then try to show them the way. You know, we, uh, we're very proud of the, the, the number of of alumni already in a very young program that that have books uh, you know some of them they come to the to the book route slowly because they make other choices as soon as they leave the program some of them leave the program with books we had one young man uh, who showed up with a book project that was finished and published before he left the program um, the, the number of young people in our program you know who who publish while they're here is just it grows you know um, exponentially it seems and they have publishing parties they they get together online and and they say tonight for the next four hours we're all going to send out work and here are the places to send them and then you know a month later it's another party because now they're getting responses back and and so their work is being picked up and you know we our program is more international than it's ever been you know we have a student currently who's from turkey one from nigeria mm -hmm. uh i think they are probably our fourth and fifth international students so our program is you know, it's getting, it's making some noise, you know, internationally. But I'm not surprised because, you know, we have a really, you know, high caliber uh, list of faculty, including Crystal Wilkinson, who, 
you know, people travel from everywhere just to study with her. But I think that's that's really the the high end of it uh, is that chance to forge a relationship with individuals who who've done it already, and who are more than happy to say, "Well, here's a roadmap," um, and, and just try this route and personalize it. You know, make it make sure it fits you and your goals. But uh, there's gold at the end of this. You know, even if it's not monetary, it's you know a kind of satisfaction that's built on seeing your name on the spine of a book. If that's what you want. This is one way to do it. Well, that's a, um, a lead-in to our underwriter, uh, the wonderful uh, work that's being done at Spalding University in Louisville uh, and the new, newly named uh, uh, Cedar Gita Naslin Mann uh, Writing School, and uh, they're doing so many wonderful things there. But let's hear about that. We'll take a pause, and then uh, we'll come back and talk about A's for Appalachia. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing, serious writers thrive with one-on-one faculty attention in a supportive community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies, or travel to Paris for short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Frank X. Walker is our guest. He will be our guest uh, and you will be able to meet and talk with him at the uh, 41st uh, Annual Kentucky Book Festival out at Joseph Beth Booksellers. Uh, in Lexington at Lexington Green. Uh, Frank has uh, uh, several uh, new works and uh, one that we're going to talk about next. Uh, he won't have that at the book festival, but I'll bet you he'll answer some questions about it. Maybe even take an order or two uh, <laughs> while he's out there. Um, and that is A for Afrolatcha. And uh, uh, it's it's a, um, I only have, although I've been sent a, a PDF, I didn't get into that uh, on Friday, but I did read all about it and know um, what you've done there. So tell me again, Frank, I, I mean, honestly, you're amazing with your um, ingenuity, with your inventiveness and, and your work ethic. You're, you're always doing something, always thinking. And, and out of all of this, when you could have maybe rested a little bit, uh, you, you, you've got a new publication coming out in 23. I'm most excited about will be my first children's book. Uh, and of course, I'm, you know, I, I even question, you know, when people ask me, well, what age child is it for? Uh, and I get to say it's every age because it's the kind of book where uh, you can grow up with it. Uh, there are older individuals who don't consider themselves children, but their knowledge of the material makes them kind of childlike because there's so much new information in, the, in this book. Uh, a is for Afrolatia. Uh It's a history book. It's a, uh, you know, the most important part of the book is the glossary. You know, there are four or five pages at the end that that detail uh, many of the names that I mentioned, the luminaries that really uh, tell the story of Afrolatia in a way that uh, people most likely have never heard before. I mean, there there are books out there that talk about the region. And some that have won awards that talk specifically about singular parts of the region, but there's not a book 
that is in a very broad way talked about the richness of the African-American history of, of the entire 13-state region like this book does. And so to do that and do it for, young, for a younger audience uh, kind of forces older people to recognize that I don't know this either. Yeah. Uh, to, I, want the, you know, I want this for my grandchild, but I know they will also read it and learn at the same time. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And well, the images are spectacular. By, by Ron Davis. Yes. Um, he's done uh, such a, an interesting job with the art that is provided for the publication. And I think, again, uh, returning to the way we began our conversation earlier about the lack of history in Kentucky. And uh, gosh, uh, if it's not being taught, and maybe it should be, in the classroom, uh, A is for Appalachia is, is, uh, should be in everyone's home because, and let's just, let's just pull a few of those names out of the air and let you talk a, a little bit about it. Maybe some of the more obscure, and I'll have to tell you, I mean, you, you said adult a minute ago. Uh, when, when I looked at the, the list, I, I knew quite a few, but there were some that, that I had to quickly go to the glossary and, and, and look up. So, I mean, that, that's important. I think so. I think that's the richness of it. It will be a teaching tool in the hand of the teacher and the student and the parent and the young reader to have that conversation together. And, you know, my goal is that, you know, it really helps people in general kind of force a redefinition of the region and how they think about Appalachia. You know, Appalachia is not a specific geographical limited space, but it's more of an idea that tries to you know, make people acknowledge that it is a, a multicultural, diverse space, much more than people tend to think, because I think most people follow the caricature of the region and assume it's, it's, it's all white and all rural, and neither of those things are true. Uh, so the, one, the, one of the beauties of the book is that it pulls in these uh, very urban spaces and, and talks about their contributions, like Pittsburgh and Birmingham, for instance. You know, people don't ordinarily think about those two cities, which are very... Uh, African-American, uh, and, and the population numbers are large, and and, uh, and people talk about the histor historical figures from that era and that space, but never connect them to Appalachia. In the same way that when you hear Booker T. Washington or, or Jesse Owens or Henry Louis Gates uh, or even Carter G. Woodson, the father of African-American history, you don't think about Appalachia. You know, So this book gives you those luminaries and puts them in that same space in a way that isn't typically done. And, and I think that's one of the richness uh, of the book, to be able to, to kind of conflate those spaces and, and areas that people tend to treat differently, but, but not in this case. Did you, uh, was this a, a collection of these names or um, heroines and heroes that you had kept over the years? Did, how, how did you come up with the the full uh, list uh, of people that are included? I think this list grew out of, uh, I would say, in the last, since 1991, I've probably given hundreds of, of talks in the region. Uh, in addition to readings, I've, I've had a chance to lecture and, and make short films and, and go to conferences and, and be on panels and, and give presentations and host symposiums. Um, but... There are certain names that, that always came up, and especially in the beginning, it was, it was mostly uh, musicians. Uh, Nina Simone, you know, 
would always come up. Bill Withers, uh, you know, Roberta Flack, you know, these names, as they started to trickle in, uh, at some point, you know, I could kind of just give a list of these luminaries off the top of my head because, you know, people want to know how expansive the region was. And so these are names from North Carolina and West Virginia and, you know, uh, in and around Pittsburgh and Birmingham. And, and then they, they started to grow to include poets and, and political figures and uh, even, you know, uh, Current celebrities like T.D. Jakes, people know who people don't people know who T.D. Jakes is because of his his church, uh, and because of his you know his 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 own publishing, but nobody I think, I can't find one other person who's ever said well he's from Appalachia. Uh, I didn't know that. So when you hear that, uh. same thing with Jesse Owens, they, they know yeah. about the gold medals in Berlin, but nobody's ever said in a public space or a book that said he's from Appalachia. Mm-hmm. So when you hear that, you go. Why did I know that? Why do people not ever make that connection? And if you make that connection and the list is long, you know, including, you know, people know who the Black Panther is uh, because he's been in so many movies and he's the icon as, as a celebrity fictional character. But people don't think about Mr. Bozeman as an Appalachian, but he is. You know, so when you hear these names and you go, well, why did I not know this? You know, why isn't, why isn't that been important for other people who've told their stories. Why did they yeah. always leave that out? And for me, uh, it's just been an opportunity for me. I think that, you know, I'm happy they didn't make the connection because now I get to. Yeah. T- t- help me with a couple of um, them and, and even one uh, pronunciation. Sure. Is it uh, Romare Bearden? Oh, Romare Bearden. Yeah. He's a visual artist uh, who grew up in, in Pittsburgh in New York, uh, but his, his grandparents lived in, in the heart of Appalachia, and he spent his youth in, in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a good friend of, of August Wilson, the playwright. Uh, you know, so a lot of, a lot of Romare Bearden's titles come from August Wilson plays, and people oh, really? had never made that connection. So discovering that for myself in the research, I got really, really excited about uh, that connection because both of them are favorites of mine. And yeah. again, these are two people that, when they talk about their lives, they never connect them to Appalachia. But if you look at all this African-American genius that comes out of Appalachia, you know, you can't help but say this, this should be in, in a central place. And this is what the book tries to do. And the musician and the pronunciation you're going to have to help me with, uh, uh, Kia is the last oh, name? Amethyst Kia. Amethyst. Yeah. Okay, it is Amethyst mm-hmm. Kia. Um, tell me. She, uh, she, uh, they just headlined the... Um, uh, a festival here in Lexington only a month ago. I got to meet uh, them and their father, uh, amazing musician, performs with uh, Rihanna Giddings. Yeah. Uh, they did a, they created the super group Native Daughters uh, that won everything, you know, two years ago. Uh, and she has this, they have this very strong, powerful, soulful uh, voice that, I mean, once you hear one song, you're gonna wanna buy the album. You know, I can still say album, I think. Um, but the, you know the. I think I met them at a Kentucky Women's Conference Poetry Slam a dozen years ago in Lexington, when they were just making their way and traveling with uh, with their father around the, the region uh, and looking for opportunities just to perform, and and they opened uh, the reading that night, and I remember going, 
I've got to buy this music. <laughs> so I have uh, the very first, you know, CD. Well, I think you call it a CD, but I think there maybe three songs on it. Um, and I've watched them just develop and, 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 and grow. And now we probably couldn't afford to, to bring them uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to campus even. Well, how interesting. Um, Frank, as we uh, said, uh, you will be at the Kentucky Book Festival on October 29th out at Joseph Beth. What is it like for you as a, as a writer and a poet, but, but also as a, a citizen of the, of the world uh, and of Appalachia to, to be there and, and have people come up and, and want to talk with you and, and sometimes buy your books? It's an absolute honor. It's, it's one of the, my greatest th things to do as a Kentucky writer. But the richest part for me is to, to be with other Kentucky writers. You know, I was just in a conversation recently with Wendell Berry, and I was telling him the story that he didn't, re he didn't remember that clearly because it had been so long ago. At my very first Kentucky Book Fair, uh, I had the unenviable position of being put right next to Wendell Berry. And, and what happened was such a humbling thing initially because the line for Wendell Berry was out the door. Uh, and there was nobody at my table. Nobody ever heard of me. I was there with Afrolatcha and people would look my direction and go, I don't know who that is. I never heard of that thing or that book. And then look away. Uh, and at some point, you know, Wendell, you know, he's in this kind, generous way, uh, talking to everybody as long as they wanted to talk and then give them the book and send them. He noticed that there was zero activity right next to him. Uh, and he must have seen my long, long face. And he clearly made a decision that the next person, he signed a book, and then instead of giving it to them, he put it on my table in front of me directly and said, oh, and why don't you check out this young man and his book? And that person slid down and, and actually looked at me for the first time. They'd been in line for probably 20 minutes, but they would not, they refused to see me. And he made them see me. Uh, and in that moment, you know, I really began to appreciate him. Uh, and people were in front of me because the people behind them wanted to see, well, why were they in that line? And, and, and why did Wendell keep doing that? And why? So yeah. he made them recognize there was another writer in that space that, uh, in his opinion, he and he, I don't think he really even knew my work, but I think it was the the thing to do as a Kentucky writer, look out for other writers, especially younger writers, that that still is kind of it, part of our methodology. I think a lot of young writers feel heard uh, and supported because of the older writers, uh, the other generations of writers. Gurney Norman uh, has been my, you know, I call him my literary father because of the way he has mentored me over the years and ushered me into the classroom, to, to reading spaces, to conferences, to Kentucky in general, Eastern Kentucky specifically. Mm -hmm. None of that would have happened without his mentorship. So, you know, part of what we've done as the Appalachian Poets is to do the same thing for generations of younger writers to make sure they have things that we wish we'd had when we came, you know, of age uh, uh, as writers. So, Well, um, you mentioned uh, Wendell. Um, Gurney won't be there with a new book, but uh, I, I guarantee you he will visit um, and probably be in the audience when Wendell is in conversation with Crystal Wilkinson. Uh, is we just got Crystal's okay for that and um, and Wendell's, um, and and that's going to be a good conversation uh, at eighty whatever years old. Doesn't make any difference, but 
uh, three new books uh, this year, uh, and two of them will be at the book festival. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, he just keeps on ticking. He's a he's a machine. He's, <laughs> he, he is amazing, and and I think and he's also probably the best example for every age writer. Um, and he's writing in every genre. I mean, so yeah. when you think you've, you know, it's like if you think you've worn yourself out or done so much, you can't really pat yourself on the back and say, well, what has Wendell done this year? Yeah. And you go, oh, okay, I, I need to work a little harder. Exactly. <laughs> well, Frank, um, and we must tell people, too, that uh, there have been a few uh, coughs during this uh, that you just got over about a COVID as we're taping this, and, and we wish the best on feeling better and Thank having a, a great uh, semester at UK and uh, we're so looking forward to having you uh, at the Kentucky Book Festival. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.